I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have a very close friend of mine, Milo McBride. Milo is a musician, an activist, an environmentalist, and truly one of the most intelligent people I know. I met Milo when I was a freshman at NYU. He had this awesome band called Milo and the Fuzz, and he's an incredible musician. But now he's doing so many amazing political, climate, and environmental endeavors that I'm so proud to know him. We're going to get really deep into the chaos of America here. It is. Milo McBride, welcome to An Actor Despairs, brother. It's so good to have you here, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's hard to believe I've fucking known you since 2008, which is 12 years, but now you're an awesome, like, killing in the world, climate advocate, just graduated Columbia University and international affairs and what, what's the uh, environmental uh, policy? Yeah, I went to the International Affairs School to study environmental science and policy, and it was a really special experience. But for, for those who don't know, when I met Milo, you were at the Clive Davis Department of Music, and you had a pretty fucking radical band called Milo and the Fuzz, which produced one of my all-time favorite songs, <laughs> lyrically and tonally, Elevator Girl. start at the beginning you grew up in new york right grew up in new york born and raised lifelong new yorker and west um, or east side I, I was born in washington heights washington heights like northwest and then grew up like morningside upper west area um, Got it. and yeah lifelong new yorker um definitely what watched you, the city yeah what'd your parents do um my parents are architects oh nice yeah for like uh private residences or like you know public spaces or a lot of different stuff um my dad does like 
residents, but also like uh, stuff for muse- art galleries and museums. Um, yeah, oh, awesome. My mom. So your parents are, you, would you qualify your parents as artists? Yeah, they're definitely like uh, creatives, and you know, definitely grew up in an environment thinking about um, thinking about art, being exposed to art, being exposed to creative things, and. But also at the same time, my dad is like a total 60s kid, you know, raised me in a kind of awareness of political engagement and activism and why that's important. So got a bit of both. I'm just so curious because like, you know, man, I've lived here. I'll probably die here at this point. But (laughs) I always want, you know, if I did have kids, I'm iffy on the kids. I always wanted them to grow up here. How did that experience, because I feel like, like at, at, when you're 12 in New York, you're like 22 anywhere else, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, sh- I think it's a shocking experience. Um, you know, for one, I grew up um, in a world where I was exposed to really extreme uh, unprecedented levels of wealth that, um, you know, I just see there's no moral or economic reasoning for those to exist. Um, and that definitely private sector education in New York. Yeah. Like, you know, went went to a private school with kids who had chauffeurs and, um, like Riverdale Dalton school, that kind of, yeah. 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 I went to Dalton where Jeffrey Epstein Ah, was a teacher and yeah, where they have yet to release a uh, statement about his employment, but no way. Yeah, wow. oh yeah. That's yeah. insane. Or how you, you fucking take the resume to even get it. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a lot of unanswered questions that we don't have time to go into. But yeah, yeah, you know, I think growing up in the city, I both saw, you know, growing up in neighborhoods that were underserved and going to a school of uh ruling elites. Um and seeing that dichotomy was definitely formative. Um I would take the ninety sixth street crosstown bus every day to school. And, you know, when you get to Park Avenue, you look south and you see the doorman and the awnings and you look north and you see the train tracks in Spanish Harlem. And that type of division um, in our economy and in our society has always been something that's really troubled me for sure. And then watching New York change, you know, New York went from this old York kind of quirky Steinfeld place to what basically looks like a multinational strip mall where all the old time shops reigned supreme. Totally. Hypercapitalism yeah. just took over uh, the like, localized market economy that we used to have. And, and having that juxtaposition and that dichotomy, understanding young, like how, like, for example, for me, I don't think I really understood wealth until I came to NYU. Like I grew up in Richmond. Totally. I had friends totally. that were like millionaires, but like the kind of wealth that you're talking about, I think you and I, we really understand, but a lot of the world doesn't really understand that kind of like old money, you know, generational wealth that exists. Yeah. And it can be new money too, you know, like a Jeff Bezos today. Um, But I think it's, I think most people don't understand the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders is a millionaire, Yeah, but the amount of capital that billionaires control is so much more vast and so unprecedented in our time. And of course it, was something we saw in the early 1900s um, for sure in this, but it's, it's unprecedented in our time. And that, that difference, I think we have to really start to see is, is who's really controlling. It's a very small amount of people, you know? Yeah. 
And I'm curious, when you were in school then, how did how did it make for like assimilating in different peer groups? Like, did you kind of because you and I are very similar and like we had the same friends at NYU. Like, did you find skating and alternate culture as a way to kind of push yeah. yourself from those people? Yeah, I mean, it was I was and don't get me wrong. Some of some of these people are not. I have friends. Yes, I have friends that are great people. But yeah, I definitely felt relegated to a type of kind of counterculture um, and to identify with skateboard culture, punk rock, um, (laughs) you know, going to war tour. (laughs) Yeah, just going out. And yeah, I was like, I was definitely on like a. uh, I was unhappy with the situation, but I will also say I found some really amazing people at that school. And some of them today are, you know, progressive advocates working in the courts, working at the ACLU, you know, really trying to devote the education they got to better serve people need and um, society overall. Of course, the super rich are just like working at Goldman and JP and investing in coal, but I found some really beautiful souls there who are trying to trying to do good for the world. And as far as educational value, do you feel like you did get a superior education? I think I learned a lot and I had some amazing teachers, but I think, you know, learning about economics, the best way to learn about economics is to like work hard jobs And I feel like I learned more about how morally depraved our economic system is as, as a musician trying to get by and like working horrible jobs on the side. Like that to me is way more important than any, you know, fancy education can ever bring you. Cause that's what we're dealing with in this world. I couldn't agree. Bar backing and like doing like, which I did post-grad was like that humbled me in a way that I never, it tethered me to, to the reality that most people existed. You know? Absolutely. And all, yeah. and all over the world, you know, people are lucky to have grueling labor jobs like that, you know, and that's that's just the horrible circumstance of our economy. So it's totally. I think it's really important. Yeah. And then I'm curious, then, how did the how did the artist thing happen for you? I mean, obviously, your parents being architects, I imagine they expose you to a lot of culture, let alone New York City. You have Broadway, yeah. you have all these things like was that a natural progression from skating? Like you wanted to express <laughs> yourself via music or? Yeah, it's a good question. My parents raised me on Sly Stone, the Beatles, and the Gypsy Kings, and um, oh, they just nice. like I know they 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 gave me some great tunes. And I had a cousin, um, I have a cousin, Oliver Ignatius, who's an amazing musician. He was the lead singer in a band called Hysterics, which were very oh, yeah. popular back. Yeah. yeah, and we would always jam out when we were kids, and. Yeah, just really fell in love with with music and definitely at, you know, this, it's not a coincidence that like I love Sly Stone, which was like a truly revolutionary music um, that had people of different backgrounds involved in the band. And it was, you know, really a, a kind of incredible melange of different styles and cultures. And I thought, I, I just thought that was so inspiring. And um. Yeah, I, I, and I and I love music so deeply, and I love what we can learn about people's cultures from it. And you know, that was a that was kind of how I got to study music and play in bands. And you know, it was it was all very uh, very important to who I am today. And 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 that that manifested in guitar and singing for you. That was Definitely. how you. Yeah. 
guitar and singing. And then when I was at school, um, I remember I had like a date where, sorry, yeah. School being NYU or being Dalton? Yeah, sorry. When I was at NYU, I was like, uh, I remember I was like looking at kind of the math of how many chords we could use in a song and how actually most of those had already been made. Yeah. And I started to get really interested in underground electronic music. Um, also looking at like how synth punk early minimal wave coincided with punk music was an easy gateway drug for me. Cause I was into punk totally. at the time. And then, yeah, I just fell in love with a whole other world of music. And, you know, every day since then, it feels like I've just tried to be humble to the fact that I'm still learning about so many genres of music and so many different cultures have had all of these m- amazing movements that we have yet yeah. to really dig into. And it's just been an endless discovery process since then. And, and for those listening, you know, NYU's Clive Davis is like one of the hardest, I think, if not the hardest Tisch school to get into because they take so little. And so it's, it's a huge, you know, a tribute to your success that you were that. But I'm curious, as you were there and in 2008 and, you know, we were kind of in this uh, post-Napster world and music kind of mm. stopped making money. I'm curious where your head was at, like, were you, I'm going to do a band, I'm going to do a, you know, get a band, do a road tour, or were you like, I kind of want to do something else in the music side? It's a great question. I think I was really disillusioned with the game that I saw friends were playing and I saw the industry collapsing and Ultimately, I started to see music as a long game and that yeah. is like a short-term profit sort of thing. And, totally. and just, and that was hard because, you know, it meant again, having to work strange jobs at certain times and like having to figure out how to get by. Um, but I'm really grateful I took that approach. And I think I always was just like, I want to make different styles of music with different people and see this as like an artistic process more than a business plan, which was yeah. not really what NYU wanted so much, but for me emotionally has been very fulfilling. And I think that's, that's amazing. And yeah. while, while you were there, you had that, I mentioned earlier, the wonderful band, Milo and the Fuzz. How long did that last uh, <laughs> through your course of NYU? Cause like, you guys had... were going for it for a minute. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, we had a great run. We, you know, we played some really fun, uh, Back party. when the village was the village, man, it was so cool. Totally, and yeah. back when Burdick was the Wild West, and there was like not really uh, any sort of venues. It was all just oh, like friends man. who lived in lofts. And yeah, you got a Myrtle Wyckoff, and they had this insane yeah. backyard that had like three yeah. venues in it. It was exactly. like fucking mind blowing. Exactly, uh, and um, yeah, no, we had and we had some really great moments, um, and. Lots of love to my other band members. They're such such amazing people. But you know, we played. We went to South by Southwest and played two gigs in a restaurant, and we're just. And I think we realized the that scale of it of, yeah. of how, what it's going to take to break into a market where everyone's in a three or four piece band. Yeah, and you know, it's it's the kid who wants to be a professional athlete and then goes to athlete camp and realizes what. Totally. 
Yeah, man, it's insane. <laughs> and like going back to capitalism, it's like you're Justin Bieber or you're in that working class band. Yeah, know, totally. Guitar, you know, like, totally. totally. And South by is just like the ultimate test of like, oh, I everyone shares this dream, you know? Yeah, and yeah. hey, that's beautiful. I think it's. I don't get me wrong. Like, I think in a perfect society, everyone should be allowed to be an artist, be a musician, pursue their dreams but we're just not living in that type of society. And you know, that it's, it's really hard uh, to break in. And then I also saw friends who were breaking in and there's that classic paradox of like, you got your whole life to make your first record and two months to make the follow up. And, you know, I just also realized like, I don't want to be that type of artist who like makes the same track over and again. And I want to like really explore music and sound that's was more important to me. So you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're sonically like a, a astute like brain. You want to explore like literally that that makes total sense. Um, but I'm curious then, as the postgraduate reality of that set in, how did you start to kind of find your way? What were you doing? Right. So you know, I was really interested in um, in underground electronic music, underground techno house mostly stemming from like a Detroit or Chicago sound and um, started DJing. Um, and, you know, there's some small clubs in New York. I was playing in, made some friends. I was tutoring on the side, mannying at night, you know, definitely wow. running, definitely like yeah. run, running the New York hustle, trying to pay yeah. back loans and living that life. And, um, but yeah, then I, I got, I got a couple gigs in Europe, met some friends who booked me in Rome and Berlin. And as this is, as I was putting out some of my first club tracks, yeah. um, and you know, at the time, like EDM was something I wasn't really aware of or involved in. It was just kind of foreign to me. And I found that I was getting gigs in this underground electronic sound, um, more in Europe. So I applied for an artist visa in Germany and ended up living in Germany for a couple of years. And in, in Berlin, to, right? In Berlin. And I spent a lot of time in a city called Dusseldorf that I, I really enjoyed. Um, so were you yeah, doing like Berkheim and those kind of places or? I, my, my tracks have been played in Berkheim. <laughs> I've, 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 I've unfortunately never played there, but I, I spent some time there for sure. And oh man, yeah, it was, what is fun. It was amazing. It was a spot. And, you know, I love and there's something about underground dance music that actually really hits home to the kind of progressive values that I think people like us subscribe to where it's like, you know, all shapes and sizes to be respected, all, you know, people from all over to be respected. Um, This is not it's kind of antithetical to. Uh, a bottle service club where you could like just buy your way in. This is just totally. about being unique, being true to who you are, uh, having a community that is very sex positive, also very anti uh, rape culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of these kind of, I, I could, I could see, and don't get me wrong. There's problems with it. There's hedonism, there's self-destruction, but there's also a type of ideology of community of egalitarianism that I think was, is really beautiful. Um, and we forget, of course, that like, you know, house music comes from an underground queer community of black people in Chicago. Like totally. that's, that's the background. And it's important to like uphold that ideology today. And, and yeah, I was, I was doing a bunch of stuff like, like in club world, I put out vinyl records 
and um, did a couple tours, got made it as far as Colombia, played in Cuba, played all over Europe. And it was amazing. I got to see the world and totally. meet, meet some cool people and see how different countries like Germany and Sweden, uh, Denmark operate, which America has a lot to learn from some, in terms of economy. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Sweden's having some problems with the virus, but no, I got to see that, but also I really wore myself out. You know, there, I played eight, 10 hour gigs in one night and really oh, and not even taking alcohol or drugs just the, Adderall just ex- or some shit no yeah. I don't take any of it I never did but I really exhausted myself um, and that lifestyle I mean God bless the, the veterans who do it but it was it's hardcore it's really hardcore and, wh- and what was it like being in Berlin right is the you know I mean just the pure destruction we caused in the Middle East and all these refugees were yeah. starting to come to these European cities like how did that affect your experience there totally that's a great question you know um, it was it was really important I think to see that um, my family all comes as refugees to America Um and, you know, even waiting in line to get my visa in the Ausland of Behoda, we, we, we process that. You know, I was in line with thousands of refugees from the Middle East, from Syria, um, even North Africa at the time as yeah. Algeria was descending to. And, you know, I really started to see um, how frail um, our system is and how how morally unacceptable that only Germany was accepting people. You know, that was... Yeah really really gross that it was just one country and extreme instances of racism in italy and france in particular right and totally and yeah, the united yeah, kingdom and yeah this yeah. is definitely helping the seeds of these far-right ethno-nationalist movements um to catalyze where they are yeah. today but you know i will say on the positive side i met some incredibly beautiful inspiring people who were syrian refugees iraqi refugees who you know even me being american had no hatred towards me for what the, my, you know, really hurtful, what my country's hurtful foreign policies have galvanized. Yeah. And they just, you know, these are incredibly well-educated, compassionate, intelligent people. And I was so, I was so humbled to meet them and get to spend time with them. And no, that was very important. That's see beautiful. the humans. Yeah. And like, see the human side that like, just in the news, you look at photos of like people in lines or on boats, but like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't t- like these are human beings who love their family, who love what they do and just like want to live good lives. Like yeah. that's it. And we have all these crazy mythologies about what our government thinks they are, but no, these yeah. are just, yeah. No, it's completely unacceptable. So I'm curious, did that kind of ignite a, you know, a political environmental imperative to, to go back and learn more to like, cause it, mm. talk to me about the grad school decision because yeah. you know, that's a really big life decision. Yeah. So that's a long story. And basically, you know, being, I think I could definitely start to smell that our, there was something shifting in the political zeitgeist. I was one of those deemed crazy people who was certain Donald Trump was going to win 2016. Yeah. Um, and I, at the same time, I always care about the environment, but I was starting to read into the science of it and just see how we were, ex- you know, putting out more emissions globally than ever before. And the United States at this time, which we forget 
um, was on track to becoming the largest producer and exporter of oil in the world, surpassing Saudi and Russia. Wow. So, and this was as, of course, I think a very important moment was the um, the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Standing yeah. Rock movement that came totally. out of that. So I was seeing all that. I was on tour. I was not contributing to society in a way I wanted. And I ended up applying to an artist residency program that some friends were working at in Senegal. Okay. And yeah. And they basically, um, it's called a uh, thread. It's run by the Joseph and Annie Albers foundation. And they bring in artists from all around the world and do cross uh, cultural collaborations with local Senegalese artists. And yeah. it was the best experience of my life. Um, Senegal is just such a beautiful place. People yeah. are so kind and funny and hospitable and the culture is just on fire. I love the art, the music, the food, everything. There's, totally. It's amazing. Heaven. Yeah. It's heaven. And yeah, I got to work with a bunch of uh, folk musicians there and set up some recording studios and um, community centers. And it was much more fulfilling than like playing in clubs or producing music. Sure. But when I was there, I really started to see what we can now call a climate crisis is looking like. And that's not just that fields are covered in uh, plastic and will not remediate, but it was really, again, on the human level, talking to farmers out in the countryside where I was who said, you know, my plants aren't growing. We have erratic weather coming and I will not be able to sustain my family if that's the case. And yeah. you start to do the math. That's a billion people around the world surviving on localized agriculture. Yeah. And then, Again, with the pattern of refugees um, in Mali and Mauritania near Senegal, there had been a really severe drought, which catalyzed um, a lot of skirmishes and a vacuum for terrorist cells to come in. And we started, I started to see mass migration from these regions coming into Senegal and talking to people about that and really realizing that this was going to be the major crisis of the 21st century, regardless of COVID or of economic yeah. injustice. Like this will exacerbate all of that. Totally. And I still firmly believe that. And I yeah, completely agree. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, I came back to New York being like, okay, I got to move on from this and, and try and move on from music in some capacity. And sorry. Was it a moment yeah. of, of disillusionment or was it a moment of extreme inspiration extreme or inspiration? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I just read every book I could. Um, yeah. and you know, really came back trying to get involved. I met a young sunrise movement, which at the time was you know, six or seven kids in a bedside apartment doing phone calls for local campaigns. But after these first months of volunteering with them, um, we went down to D.C. for a big protest, and we met representatives Rashida Taib and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and yeah. spent a day in a church talking about this idea of a Green New Deal and what that would be. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, basically got involved in lobbying to political representatives, um, talking to staffers, talking at schools, um, trying to engage both uh, politicians and the public about how we need to think big to deal with not just the climate crisis, but these drastic other shifts in our economy and our labor markets and the other issues and how to fight them together um, with this big policy thinking. And 
being in the room with someone like uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who's like a very stubborn and slick politician, yeah. I really wanted to learn the economics and the science really fluently so I could win that argument. And, totally. and that's why I ended up applying to Columbia and doing this degree. I, and, and that was a two-year or three-year program? It was a, basically like a two-year program in 12 months. They really... Wow. Got you in and out over the summer. We had class 10 hours a day. Five oh, days. so it was a full year of just like going for it. Totally. And then in wow. winter break, some some classmates and I went to Israel and Palestine for a delegation trip there. Wow. So no break. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to ask you, because I'm sure, you know, maybe you are too, but like a huge David Simon fan and, you know, the American experiment, we've seen this examined in so many shows, but The Wire in particular you know, mm. talks about how these institutions that are designed to protect us end up being the ones that let us down the most. And in your mm. time with these politicians and the lobby and the political action groups and committees, do you think it's possible for change in the American system that we have now? Or do you think that 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 corporations and, and profit have, have eliminated the capacity for real substantial change in, in the time that we need it to happen? And I, I'm it's sorry, a great, it's a, that's a really existential question. I no, know. it's a great question. It's a yeah. great question. You know, I think it's, first of all, it's not just corporations and what we call dark money, like yeah. the, the money they're fueling uh, to make policy decisions and to fuel politicians. Yeah. Um, but it's also just like the financialization of our democracy and how even the Democratic Party just fully operates um, in a deification of wall street and yeah. financial neoliberalism and uh, yeah yeah totally yeah. so yeah. so I, I yeah i think that it is re- it is really hard to change a lot of the current democratic politicians um let alone i mean republicans are a whole other issue yeah. uh, i just don't yeah um, yeah but it's really it's really hard to change them. I actually am very impressed by how many votes we got on the resolution for Green New Deal um, in both the House and the Senate. Um, and I think watching climate become a center focus for the Democrats this debate, um, watching someone like Elizabeth Warren coming out with her own idea for a Green New Deal or yeah. Julio Castro coming out with his own idea. I mean, th- this is taking like, just kind of center progressive candidates and helping them rethink policy. Um, so in that sense, I think there is room to change them, but um, I think ultimately um, the democratic party needs to be uh, reprioritized. And yeah. that is something that has to happen quickly and that we're struggling with, you know, we're, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's problematic. It's pro- everything about, and and of course this comes as as a time as Republicans are just getting more severe. And you know, yeah. While while, I mean, while COVID has happened, they've dismantled the Environmental Protection Agency, like just yeah. not doing anything, and and put, and and put people that like have sued these agencies to undermine the very institution they're designed to protect. Absolutely. And in political science, we call that state capture or regulatory yeah. capture when the people who have are from private interest firms or private interest groups invade politics 
and make policy decisions on behalf of those interests instead of the public and their well-being. Yeah. And this starts with Bush and Cheney. You know, that was it. Cheney was the CEO of Halliburton before coming to uh, the White House. And Halliburton today fracks about a third of the wells in the United States. And Cheney basically legalized fracking in the Halliburton yeah. loophole of 2005 so that his firm, which he had $80 million worth of assets in, would benefit from. So yeah. that, that phenomenon is what we're seeing all over the board today in the United States. And no, it's, 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 it's bad. It's bad, but we also have. Oh, sorry. No, finish your thought. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just that we also have really inspiring young voices, voices of color coming up to the table and saying, this is not acceptable. We are going to do better. So that is some hope in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm curious now because I think, you know, in the last election, we really saw it. And I had a wonderful hacker named Hardy Hertzian who did, uh, uh, a film called Hacking Democracy and mm, explores the uh, Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams election and how it was systematically rigged by Kemp's office. But right. one of the things I'm, I, I spoke to Hardy about is, is the information warfare that we're dealing with now mm. is the disinformation and the misinformation through social media, through Russian influence. How do you think like, and, and, and there's no easy answer to this, but how do in a search for truth now, mm. you know, because like media, no matter what side it in, there, there's always that, that what's that great uh, Mark Twain quote is like, if you, if you watch the news or you read the news, you're misinformed. And then uh, if you don't, you're uninformed, you know, yeah. and you know, not it, there's your truth, my truth and the truth, but in, in a search now where we have an entire, you know, like, you know, Trump tweeting that, and that this old man was a Antifa actor, yeah, you know, I mean, totally. it's just got, it's just gotten completely out of control. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have immediate policy solutions to solve that. That's a, yeah. that's something, unfortunately, that we should have dealt with 10 years ago as the seeds of this were being planted. Yeah. Um, and now the issue is if you try and regulate Twitter or Facebook or one of these corporations, then it fuels the fire of what uh, this neo-Confederate Republican message is saying, which is that it's an agenda to silence us, right? If Twitter starts doing their fact-checking, then he can just say, oh, Twitter has an agenda, a liberal conspiracy to silence us. And, you know, so so it's it's we're an incredibly dangerous place right now. Um, I think one thing that will be interesting to watch is – when what we see starts to really break from reality um, in terms a immediately of COVID, because mm. it's about to get way worse here, yeah. regardless of what anyone says. 100%. Um, and he's going to keep saying it's fine, whatever. But I think that will be impossible. Second one, unemployment. We're at about 14.5% unemployment. Uh, bear in mind, other developed nations are, you know, two, four, 7%, like France, UK, Japan, they're in there. Yeah. And we are so much above and beyond that. And I think it's going to continue as COVID continues. Yeah. Um, so that's, these things are going to be hard to ignore. And then the last, going back to it, climate. You know, it's yeah. impossible to ignore climate now as weather gets weird, as flooding will increase. And we're seeing a lot of young Republicans actually believing in climate change now. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's a scientific fact. You know what I mean? It is. I, yeah. We're past what's called the golden rule of science, where it's, yeah. it's really inarguable. And totally. Yeah. So, but in terms of fake news, that's something we, we also, as progressives, have to stay focused on because we haven't yet had deep fakes. And who knows when the manipulation of videos starts to infiltrate our perception of news and reality. Yeah, totally. And that's, well, that's something. Fox News doing that and simple things yep. is photoshopping, you know, yep. police in Minnesota. And it, it, it's, I mean, it's an atrocity, you know, I mean, absolutely. It, 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 it's the opposite of journalism. You know, it's everything yep. Orwell wrote about. And I'm yes. curious with this imminent election, you know, we have the primary coming up here in New York on June 23rd. Woo! Jamal Bowman. Yes. Woo! I just put my absentee ballot in yesterday. I hope everyone else did that is not able to go to the polling stations. Um, You know, as you referenced earlier that you saw Trump getting elected coming. And I know we spoke Mm -hmm. earlier before we started recording about trying to keep it hopeful, but I I want you to be honest. Do you think there's hope for 2020? In November, I mean. Uh, I think on local levels, we could see a continuation of progressive politicians, politicians uh, take take more power. Yeah. And that's that's really good because we need local legislation for a lot of the things we're asking for. But I think on the federal level, what we're seeing in Wisconsin, what we're seeing in Alabama right now. With voter suppression. With, with voter suppression. We yeah. should expect something like that in the federal election. Yeah. And we should we should do everything we can. We should, uh, you know, I volunteer on the weekends for this incredible candidate named Jamal, Jamal Bowman. I yeah. really hope he wins. Um, we should do everything we can, but also we should be emotionally resilient and prepared for a federal government that does not care about democracy to yeah. not hold a democratic election. That is in the realm of possibility. And I will say to give you hope and your listeners hope that, you know, it's, we should look to the to the era of the Great Depression yeah. because our unemployment rates are analogous to what we saw then, yeah. and the type of um, friction and tension and despair in society is also c- comparable. Um, and I think if you went back in time and asked anyone during the Great Depression that this, if they thought that this incredible a uh, progressive movement called the new deal would have been possible. They would have looked at you like you were crazy. Yeah. And you know, this we're so unaccustomed to being in a state like that. Cause we've had fluctuations, but relative prosperity for our economy. And um, at least like white people have for the past 56 years. Um, sure. But you know, we also have to be realized that if it gets worse, which is possible, that is really a time where we can imagine, realize, and actualize these ideas of how we're going to rebuild. And that's why the New Deal was was so powerful. You know, obviously there's problems with it. Left out black people, left out women. That's yeah. unacceptable in today's world. And that's why a Green New Deal will not do that. Totally. But we need to to not be beaten down by the horrors that could happen in 2020. And, because and- that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And in, yeah. in the, the marginal voters listening that, you know, or have this to say about Biden and this to say about Trump, 
What do yeah. you find is a, is a great uh, resource for information getting, you know, because it's like CNN, Fox, Dem, Republican. Like, what do you, right. what, where do you get your news from? It's a great question. Um, I mostly, I mostly use InfoWars. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Great, great journalist. Got him. Got him. No, no, no. I, I use, so I think The Guardian is an exceptional journalist. Yeah. They have great integrity and they are committed to a cause of, um, hearing different voices, but also really showing it. May I say on your show, no bullshit type of yep. news um, uh, in terms of more investigative stuff. The intercept is obviously great. And I, I like these publications because they will criticize Democrats and Republicans yeah, in a way I that mean, Fox uh, and CNN. Yeah. Cannot. What, what, what's the, what's the guy's name? Glenn Greenwald's partner that hosts the intercepted. I, uh, oh yeah. Uh, I can't think of his name, but he's, he's amazing. I love that podcast. I do too. I think um, yeah, they're great. Yeah. And you know, honestly, a lot of the research I do right now on energy and environment and policy, I use Reuters because Reuters is just an incredibly boring, non-biased news source. Yeah. Very numbers based. And I think that is actually important too, that, sure. you know, I, I get frustrated even with the New York times because it's just so based in liberalism. And totally. Even if I agree with that, I'm just like, why are you feeding It's not that? objectivity, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I also, you know, another like a free, free life hack is I think democracy now as a news show, a daily news show is just great and would recommend yeah. very highly. That's Especially amazing. for inter- yeah, international affairs, you know, you hear a lot of good stuff there. And and what's next for you, brother? I mean, I, it sounds like I, I, I'd back you for office any day. Any chance of... <laughs> Of a run for council, or yeah, you know, I think maybe someday if someone wants to uh, ask that of me, I would consider it. But right now, I'm I'm really interested in a volunteering on campaigns um, for people of color, for people who have felt the burden of this society, and to push them into power. I think that's yeah. really important. Um, and um, right now, for me, I'm, I, I'm working for a professor uh, at Columbia has a think tank called the Center on Global Energy Policy, and we research uh, the U.S. shale industry, um, okay. so frac- our fracking industry, shale yeah. oil and gas. And uh, I'm going to be finishing that in the next couple of weeks and then starting to write for a publication called Climate and Capital, which talks about the intersection of financial markets and climate change and yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and so finish what you were going to say, brother. But yeah, I, I that's that's my short term. Yes, <laughs> talk about what's in in musical taste for you. Yeah, so musically, I've actually, and it's kind of more fitting for your show. I've been really inspired by and passionate about doing scores for projects. So. Yeah. Um, I did a film score for an incredible documentary about a group of women in Calcutta that run a dance school for um, victims of, of violence, domestic violence. And um, yeah, I did the soundtrack for that. And I do music for a friend in Germany um, named Rindon Johnson, who's a amazing visual, visual artist. And yeah, I have a, a band. It's kind of like R and, future R&B meets 
Detroit house sort of vibes. Um, right. I'm into we that. just put, yeah, we just put out an LP. Um, it's called where, Pharma Grand Street. And where can people yeah, find that? Yeah, I think on all of the vinyl sales shops, um, it's around and got a nice write up in Office Magazine about it. And yeah, it's, a, it's been a good project and hope to keep doing stuff like that That's on the side. Good, and, and, yeah. and what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? I think probably follow on Instagram as milo.mp3 or on Twitter as at Milo McBride. Amazing. And we're going to listen to a piece now. What, what, what do you have in mind? Uh, I feel like some of the pharma record would be a good spot. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll let you decide. Yeah. By Milo McBride. Milo McBride, thanks for coming on, brother. I got so much love for you, dude. Right back at you. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. It's, and a, dude, it's a pleasure. Let's fucking hang when you get back to the city, man, and get some coffee. I would love that. I I'll come volunteer at some of this stuff with you. I would love that. So right. good to chat, bro. I, I love you, brother. Love you too. Take care. Something in the sky keeps me hoping. Something in your eyes, what's hiding there? Something in the sky keeps me going. Hiding there Hiding there
you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.